Hello and welcome. You found the Social Work Podcast. My name is Jonathan Singer, and I'll be your host as we explore all things social work. In the late 1990s, early 2000s, I co-facilitated a group for parents who were trying to reunify with their children who had been removed from their care by the state. Nearly all of the parents who were signed up for my group were women who had confirmed cases of neglect against them, primarily for failing to protect their children against abusive partners. As you can imagine, this was an intense group. As facilitators, we were always listening for moments when parents expressed genuine empathy towards their child's experience, took responsibility for their actions or inactions, and demonstrated steadfast dedication to protecting their children. I felt proud of this group, for the most part. There were times, though, that I had the unsettling thought that I was part of a system that did not practice what it preached. I remember this one mom who was part of our group that had suffered severe physical and sexual abuse at the hands of her husband for years, sometimes to protect her kids. And in the end, it didn't stop him from hurting his kids. So the police eventually intervened. Child welfare took the kids. The dad was sent to jail. And now the mom, among other things, was in our group. Her full reunification plan included attending AA, job training, keeping a part-time job, three bus rides from her home, participating in individual therapy, this group, keeping her house spotless, and a couple other things that I can't recall. What I do recall is her saying that she felt like the system was setting her up to fail. If her house, attendance, or job performance was anything less than perfect, she would be punished in the worst way possible, never seeing her kids again. I'll never forget when she said, My husband was the same way. There was no room for error. Anything less than perfect, and I'd get a beating. But there was only one of him, and there are like six of y'all. I felt more abused by this system than I ever did with my husband. It feels more like a gang rape, which I do in fact know about. I didn't have words for it at the time, but today I'd say that the system was re-traumatizing this mom by taking away all of her power and sense of control over both her own life and the lives of her children. Now, does this mean that the system should ignore the fact that she did not protect her children from horrendous abuse? No, of course not. But it does beg the question, how effective could the system be at helping her become a better, more protective parent if she likened her experience in the system to gang rape? So what's the alternative? Well, I'm glad you asked. Today's episode of the Social Work Podcast looks at trauma-informed care, one of the promising approaches to working with people without causing additional trauma. And I had the honor of talking about trauma-informed care with Nancy Smith, professor and dean of the School of Social Work at the University of Buffalo. There are three reasons why Nancy was the perfect guest for today's topic. First, she understands what it means to address trauma at the micro, meso, and macro level. 
She's worked in both mental health and addiction treatment for over 35 years as a clinician, manager, educator, researcher, and program developer. Second, she's what we like to call a content expert. She's a board-certified expert in traumatic stress. Her research, teaching, and practice focuses on trauma, substance abuse, and on working with people recovering from those experiences, including the use of innovative treatment approaches like EMDR and mindfulness meditation. In today's episode, we talked about Nancy's interest in trauma-informed care. She identified the basic assumptions behind trauma-informed care. She clarified the relationship between a trauma-informed approach to working with clients and specific empirically supported treatments for people with trauma histories and treatment for people with PTSD. She talked about some of the ways that she's translated trauma-informed principles into micro-level treatment practices, something that is surprisingly absent from the literature. We ended with resources for people who are interested in learning more about trauma-informed care, including a bunch of episodes on the In Social Work podcast series. Now, the third reason... See, you thought I forgot about the third reason, didn't you? But I didn't. The third reason why Nancy was the perfect guest for today's episode has to do with what I just mentioned about the In Social Work podcast series. So... Nancy is one of Social Work's technology visionaries. She was the driving force behind the University of Buffalo's award-winning podcast series in Social Work. When the UB School of Social Work podcast series started in 2008, some of my most vocal fans of the Social Work podcast expressed disdain that someone would produce a competing Social Work podcast series. I've always been grateful to Nancy and her colleagues for the excellent work they do. And honestly, even if there were 10 podcast series on social work, we probably wouldn't even begin to scratch the surface of all the content that needs to be covered. And truth be told, if I had to compete against the In Social Work every two-week production schedule, I would lose. So, in the spirit of non-competition and collegiality, today, April 29th, 2013, the two podcast series are having a little bit of a cross-promotion. I'm publishing my interview with Nancy Smith, and the In Social Work podcast series is publishing an interview with me. In Social Work's Laura Lewis interviewed me about my work on the nation's first public art suicide prevention project, the City of Philadelphia's Finding the Light Within Suicide Prevention Mural and Storytelling website. And I talk about my experience as a consultant and participant on this project. So, after listening to my interview with Nancy on trauma-informed care, head on over to insocialwork.org. And now, without further ado, on to episode 80 of the Social Work Podcast, an overview of trauma-informed care, an interview with Nancy Smith. Nancy, thanks so much for being here on the Social Work Podcast and talking to us today about trauma-informed care. And my first question is, why are you interested in trauma-informed care? Uh, well, personally, um, my interest probably started way back in my early days in practice, and I'll date myself here, but um, in the, the late 70s, uh, I was working with people with serious mental health problems, and it became very evident to me um, the extensive trauma histories these clients had um, from sexual abuse, physical abuse, a lot of childhood issues. And as a, as a field, we were starting to talk about this, and a lot of these folks also had substance use problems, and we were trying to figure out what do you do about all that. And I was fortunate 
in, I think, 89 to go to uh, Cape Cod Institutes with Judith Herman presenting on her book, Trauma and Recovery. Actually, she hadn't, I think she had just been publishing it at that point, or it was just about to come out, but the whole trauma and recovery model, trauma theory. And um, it really seemed to me like it was a missing piece for me in my work with clients. And so over the years, I've really worked hard to try to get people to see some of those connections, not so much in terms of a diagnosis like PTSD, but understanding how these events in people's lives uh, contribute to a lot of the things that we label as, you know, problems or diagnoses um, and that really start to affect how we go about providing care. And I think um, trauma-informed care, people get very confused about it. And it's interesting, if you go and look in the field of trauma and traumatology, which is, you know, the study of trauma, a lot of the trauma people will not even know what trauma-informed care is. It's a, a movement that started politically from survivors of trauma who were in the mental health system, really based on a lot of research about how trauma affects people, but really starting to say, you know, our systems are hurting people. They're actually uh, inadvertently re-traumatizing people in the way things are done. Um, and I certainly witnessed that firsthand and thought there's something wrong with us treating a trauma survivor in these ways. But it, you know, it didn't start to become something defined as trauma-informed care until much later when people started thinking about the principles. For me, it became a way to really think about the work we were doing in a context that often made the difference for, for people that were not getting better, people that were staying stuck, that were challenging, uh, pe- that were getting labeled as um, untreatable in you know, whatever sort of words mental health professionals use for that or substance abuse professionals use. And I think we're then often uh, clients that um, became very frustrating and um, demoralizing for, for the staff. You know, the way that you're describing it, it, it sounds like this this model or this this philosophy, trauma-informed care, is really a great fit with social work because it um, it acknowledges the individual experience, right? So maybe a childhood trauma or maybe some sort of traumatic event. But then it also says this is not something that occurs in isolation. It occurs in a context. And one of the contexts in which we interact most with people is as service providers. And so if the organization or the agency is doing something that is re-traumatizing or contributes to the pain and suffering associated with the trauma or triggers it, um, then we're not actually helping. And so it's a real nice integration between the, the kind of the micro and the, and the meso or the macro. Exactly. And I think that's one of the things that's really appealed to me um, about the model is it really does fit well with our profession in the sense of person and environment and looking at our systems of care. The core assumption of a trauma-informed care model is that it's not about what's wrong with you. It's about what happened to you. And so it's, it's uh, actually a strengths perspective in the sense that many of the things that we define as problem behaviors or symptoms, um, particularly symptoms when it comes to people who've acquired a, a diagnosis of personality disorder, actually make perfect sense when you start to understand what happened to people. Um, and you actually start to see that some of these things um, were... Um, 
coping strategies that came out of what happened. So those things are kind of congruent with, I think, the way social work at its core tries to view people. What's different about trauma-informed care is it incorporates the newer information about the impact of trauma, trauma and the brain, uh, understanding um, issues of triggering and, uh, you know, things like that, which, which we didn't have a strong understanding of. 20 years ago even. Can you give an example of something that might be seen in terms of a deficit or a problem that is is, is reframed or reconceptualized as, as a strength? Yeah, well, um, a really popular one that I think most professionals have a really tough time with is cutting. Uh, um, the self-injurious behavior yeah, that, it, that kids it, or adults have been engaging in more and more these days. Yeah, exactly. And, and I'm not going to comment that it's always about this. But what I can tell you is that at least in many of the, the people that I've worked with, I can talk about a case situation where the client gave me permission to talk about as long as I don't identify who she was, but where she would listen to parents with horrific fights that would really scare her and she would hide in the bathroom and be terrified and then discovered that if she put her hands and like her wrists up against the hot water pipes and hurt herself, that the feelings got better. They went away. Mm. Um, and, and what she said is that this was one thing that she could control. And she also had a history in her family of when she really liked things, they were often taken away from her. So this was something she could control and that was hers alone. And so understanding that, you know, really being able to say to her, I get it, you know, that it made perfect sense given what options she had to um, deal with at the time. That response to her was a huge, huge change from how every mental health professional had dealt with her up to that point, which, which was you can't do this. You have to stop. It's bad. Now, we worked towards stopping, but you have to start with acknowledging the function, what was working about it, and that it was so important to her. And for me to sit and tell her she has to, you know, get rid of it is a repetition of what happened to her growing up whenever she had something that was valuable to her, people tried to take it away. So that would be a really good example of uh, quotes, you know, we say this is a maladaptive behavior, uh, but certainly it is now, okay, although it serves a function now, but the reality is she has different choices in her life now and she can learn some other skills now. She didn't have that at age four or five. And as you were saying that, I thought about, you know, maladaptive for whom? I mean, certainly... Certainly there's this idea that you don't want people to engage in self-injurious behavior frequently and with increasing intensity because then then and we know from the research that it, it can move into thoughts of suicide and self-harm and sort of this acquired capacity for, for hurt. But it's certainly maladaptive for a therapist or a provider who's worried about liability, who feels out of control, who doesn't know. Yes. Uh, we were able to, you know, even in the um, the 80s and early 90s, and then I did, I did it again recently in my private practice. I was able to convince service providers to work with me with clients who self-harmed to not automatically demand that they be rushed to an emergency room for a full-fledged evaluation. Because once the self-harm had occurred, most of the time, the crisis was over. And to then demand that you go up and see so-and-so and spend five hours in the emergency room isn't going to make a great deal of sense. And then to throw someone out of treatment, which has often been the response because they've repeated the behavior a few times, 
So I was able to get systems to change those behaviors uh, while I worked with the person on developing some other coping skills. But what was important was doing just the assessment that you said, which is not writing the behavior off either. Every time doing a, a careful look and saying, okay, you know, when you engage in self-harm, we have to check in, we have to talk, we have to see where you're at. You make an assessment about whether there is additional risk at this point um, and then take action. So so this all sounds like good good sort of client-centered or client-respectful practice. Do you see the work that you did in changing systems as trauma-informed care? Is that how you conceptualize it? I didn't conceptualize it that way the first time that I was doing it because we weren't even using those words um, at that time. The second time, which was in you know within the last eight years, uh, pieces of that were yes, absolutely. It's about trying to um, get everyone to both understand the behavior. I mean, you know, the, the research also says about self-harm that when someone shows up in an emergency room with that behavior, that they actually get high levels of hostility from ER staff and mental health staff because people get angry at this behavior. And so then helping people see the behavior differently and understand it in context uh, and understand what it's done for someone, even where it's come from, if the client's comfortable with people knowing that, can really change some of the responses of the system. Of course, you're also working therapeutically to develop other coping skills. You have to work with a client on changing those things. So that would be a piece of trauma-informed care. But trauma-informed care is probably best thought of as not... It's not a method. It's more a framework and a context for which you do your, your work. And it certainly has to work at a system level. You can't do it just in your office as a private practice therapist and not look at the system outside of that. Um, That's really interesting. So if I saw a private practitioner advertise, I practice trauma-informed care, mm -hmm then you would suggest, well, maybe maybe I should ask a couple of questions. <laughs> maybe, maybe I should find out what exactly they're talking about because trauma-informed care is not a practice model like, say, cognitive behavioral therapy or motivational interviewing or something of that nature. No, it really isn't. I mean, it, it's guided by fundamental principles, but the methods you use for treatment couldn't be all of the things you just mentioned. So if I say I practice trauma-informed care, it tells you something about my practice in the sense that I'm working on principles of collaboration with a client as opposed to compliance. I'm working with principles of safety, of understanding safety, of understanding the need for client choice whenever possible. And I, you know, there are occasionally times that that can't be brought into place, but those are, those are actually pretty infrequent. And empowerment of a client. So that might tell you, you know, that those are principles that I use, but the ways in which I use those and the treatment methods aren't going to be clear still from that. I would certainly expect to see someone who does trauma-informed care to use something like motivational interviewing because it's very compatible with that. But I also will need to intervene in systems if that's appropriate. Now, you know, there may be clients that don't need that level of intervention, but certainly when you're talking about people who've been really affected by uh, repeated long-term trauma, which are mostly the clients that I've worked with, um, they're interfacing with many systems and um, you really do as best as you can to get those systems on board. And sometimes you can't, and then you're working with a client and helping them not internalize system reactions and um, understanding uh, that it's a system issue, it's not about them. 
So, so there's this idea that trauma-informed care is, is, is a framework and it you can use different treatment uh, approaches within that um, using uh, and, and still being guided by the principles that you just mentioned. Um, you've also mentioned trauma theory. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what trauma theory is. And then I'm wondering if trauma theory is compatible with some of these other practice frameworks like CBT or yeah. behavior therapy. And, 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 is it, and is it really possible to integrate it um, with these? Yeah, I mean, trauma theory, and, and actually it's probably more accurately described as trauma theories because there's multiple theories now in terms of uh, how trauma affects people. But it, it basically looks at um, the role of these, you know, sort of horrific experiences in people's development of self in the way people relate to the world and of the need for us to incorporate um, those understandings into our treatment. A really radical position of trauma theory might even say that most of what we think of as mental health problems need to be reconsidered in light of the research that's now emerging, which is that regardless, even things like schizophrenia that you know we say have strong biological components, that the, the history of trauma is um, often the thing that is part of the picture that may turn something from just biological um, predispositions into an actual uh, full-blown mental health problem. And this gene-environment interaction? Exactly. And, you know, it may, it may express itself in one way or in another depending on someone's genetics. But trauma theory will also truly recognize that uh, one of the things we know very solidly from the research now about childhood trauma especially is that the way in which people manage emotion is what's affected by trauma. So you get uh, emotional dysregulation. And that emotional dysregulation, uh, the inability to manage feelings, can show up in a whole variety of mental health-related problems. And that that's really what we need to go after and to to address. And that's not to say that the biological issues are not important, but that um, if you just are treating somebody with medication without dealing with those other issues, you're probably not going to get a lot of real stability for them. So you just mentioned emotional dysregulation, um, and, and this is one of the uh, sequelae of, of traumatic events. It changes the way people are able to manage their emotions. And I can imagine somebody with an eating disorder or somebody with um, depressive symptoms or a variety of, or even acting out, oppositional defiant disorder, any of these sort of diagnostic labels that we give people as being associated with difficulties regulating emotions. Yes, absolutely. And that's part of what trauma theory would say is, you know, the, the core here is trauma and its impact and then the way it gets expressed uh, partly is influenced by biology. Part of it may be also by other environmental influences in terms of, you know, whether I turn to substances. Well, if I'm growing up in a family where substances are present and I'm exposed to them, um, you know, and I, in fact, can start to use them at an early age because of that environment, that may be one way it plays out versus something else. So would you say that this understanding of where problematic behaviors this this assumption that this is where this comes from is this compatible 
with practice theories. I'll just throw it. So there's cognitive behavioral therapy. There could be solution-focused therapy, narrative, all these different treatment approaches that we that we use, that we talk about? I think it can be. Most, I'm not going to say all approaches because, you know, there's probably something out there that maybe it wouldn't fit with, but I think most people find that that approach can inform um, and work well with uh, a variety of treatment approaches. Now, some people see this trauma theory perspective as um, psychodynamic. I, I don't actually see it as psychodynamic because I think the difference between trauma theory and a psychodynamic practice is, is trauma theory focuses a lot also on the issues of biology and um, the lack of emotional processing of trauma um, and that, uh, the, that you get fragmentation of traumatic memory that happens and that that's, again, biological and um, needs to be addressed through various treatment methods. But certainly it wouldn't be incompatible with, with psychodynamic. And I think that... Um, uh, certainly cognitive behavioral social learning theories recognize the role of learning and coping and of thoughts in that process. Solution focus will obviously worry less about what happened to you, but is still very strength-based and focused on um, solutions. And we'll often see what you've been doing as an attempt at a solution. You just need to be working on some other solutions. So I don't think it's incompatible with that either. Um, what, what we talk about, though, in trauma-informed care is that in addition to taking the approach to the client, which really emphasizes choice, and I think choice and collaboration and empowerment may be where you run into trouble with some of the traditional theories. And I think this is not so much the problem with the theory as it is with its implementation, because I, I see huge variation in practitioners. But if you're going to involve, give clients some choice in how treatment's provided, you know, there are some traditions that are based more in the authority of the therapist uh, and, uh, um, and in the sort of blank slate that the therapist should be presenting and not a lot of self-disclosure. Now, that's more classic psychoanalysis than it would be the way psychodynamic theory gets implemented now. But a, a blank slate, a therapist who wasn't very human and really just tried to leave things um, sort of neutral would probably be very activating and triggering for most really severely traumatized clients because the lack of emotional cues and of responding would just, there'd be so much transference that um, people might not engage in the therapy enough to get past it. And I think that's partly why you could get a lot of dropouts. So I think it really is partly about how the therapist implements the treatment and titrates it. What what is recognized in, in trauma theory, especially and trauma informed care, is that the relationship is critical. And of course, that's not new to social work, but it puts an added understanding about um, here we have people, by and large, uh, and you know, um, trauma informed care becomes especially important for people who've lived through re repeated traumas, childhood trauma. Um, as opposed to something like 9-11, where that was the only traumatic event they had, um, that people were hurt within the context of trusted relationships and that um, here we asked them to come in and trust us and we asked them to come in and we're in an authority sort of caregiving role. So the recognition that the therapist relationship is going to be triggering from the beginning um, and that what you really need to work slowly with that um, certainly isn't a unique thing to trauma-informed care, but it's one of the central 
pieces that you really pay attention to. The other element of trauma-informed care that I haven't mentioned that I think is very important to mention is the emphasis on self-care for the therapist and for the staff. This is an approach that's especially important and designed for systems like child welfare system, you know, group homes, juvenile justice, inpatient units, as well as for people who are working independently in practice. But it's especially essential in those settings that everybody in the setting be part of understanding what these treatments are about and that we're paying attention to um, how the staff are doing and the impact of the work on the staff. And so self-care and workforce retention, burnout prevention, all of these concepts have been around for a long time. Uh, why is this particular or central in trauma-informed care? Most of the models of trauma-informed care, and there's a bunch of them out there, but if you look at something like the sanctuary model. Um, Sandra Bloom's. Yeah, Sandra Bloom's sanctuary model. That actively works at the level of staff. And in other words, the same principles you would be applying to clients have to be applied to the staff in the organization. So it's a much more active organizational intervention and not just let's be worried about staff retention. So we will look at collaboration, choice, empowerment, safety as it relates to staff in addition to as how it relates to clients. And in fact, there are assessment instruments to measure the organization on those variables. Um, we've been doing some research on that in our Institute for Trauma and Trauma-Informed Care to look at some of those instruments and see how they hold up. And, uh, and what we found are that uh, some of the organizations we've been looking at who say they're doing trauma-informed care don't do a great job on that other piece of the staff element. And yet um, we know from some research that Brian Bride did in Georgia, uh, he looked at social work workforce and child welfare workforce in that state, and I'm sure Georgia's not unique this way. Fifty percent of the workforce qualified for a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder related to their work. Wow. This is an issue for our profession you know, this issue of um, exposure and vicarious traumatization. And I think, you know, I think we come into this field with our own histories. Um, and those can be assets and they can also leave us vulnerable. Um, and so I don't think we're dealing well with this as a profession. Trauma-informed care would be casting a special spotlight on that and on what are the practices in an organization that are consistent with collaboration, choice, empowerment, all of those things, which you're absolutely right. They all contribute to things like workforce, you know, retaining workers um, and to issues of burnout. But I think um, because the model's been elaborated more specifically to look and measure the workforce that way, it's not just lip service about being concerned about those. It actually makes suggestions for um, intervention. And, you know, an example here in the school, since we've implemented um, these uh, principles into our MSW curriculum, um, in addition to some human, human rights content, uh, but the trauma-informed care pieces have us examining our implicit culture in the school. And that is a struggle because I will not – higher education institutions are hierarchical. <laughs> they are not necessarily empowering at all for faculty even. And so we say, well, okay, how can we as a system implement as many of these principles as possible here? Um, and and uh, a simple decision like, um, 
you know, we have student who's getting some bad news from us related to maybe their status in the school. How are we approaching and dealing with that? How are we taking care of the staff in that process as well? I mean, it, it focuses our attention on multiple layers where we would not be necessarily doing that, um, except in maybe extreme situations. This idea of changing the, the, the culture in the graduate education program, I think, is 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 such an interesting idea because um, I know that one of the uh, one of the ways that faculty have described uh, or kind of reframed the frustration that students often feel in schools is this is just good preparation for what it's going to be like when you're out in the agencies in the organizations that the feedback you give about good professors or bad professors or the um, the 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 assignments that seem like busy work the you know wasting your time and money this is what happens in your agencies and and so i think that there's maybe a tongue in cheek maybe a sort of a, a way of explaining it away of this is school is like this and we're not going to change it because this is how it is out there mm-hmm. and what you're mm-hmm. saying is that if if we want our uh, students who are going to become the providers to think differently about working in an organization or a system that is actually caring uh, uh, and, and, and understanding of things that might trigger someone, that it would be important to make that change in the graduate education, not just content, but the way that the education is provided, the way that the school is organized. Absolutely. And um, and at the same time, recognizing that there are competing things that the school's expected to do, for instance, gatekeeping for the profession, right? Mm-hmm. Because these are not our clients, these are our students. So, you know, where do you draw some of those lines? But how do you do it still in a... Um, in a humane way, in a way that um, really um, takes full sort of responsibility and care and whenever possible transparency. And I say whenever possible because obviously you have to respect issues of um, people's confidentiality and, and things like that in terms of their educational process. Um, so I, I, it's not a I, – I don't think anybody could create a perfect system. <laughs> it's, um, but it is more of a process and a struggle, I guess, um, and uh, – and people come down in some different places with it, but it's it's certainly, I think it's an effort you have to make, and and it's absolutely true. People are going to come up against barriers out there, and they need to learn how to work with them. But I don't think learning how to work with them is the same as just submitting to them. I think it's you know how do you uh, work with them? How do you challenge them in ways that are going to be effective? Um, you know, sometimes you do have to pick and choose your battles. Um, but to just decide I need to become, uh, to get used to what are in essence unworkable, unlivable work conditions, whether it be in school or in the workforce, I don't think we're doing ourselves or our profession any favors because I think, um, you know, I see people leave the profession. I see people end up on disability. I think that there's reasons for that. And when I look at research like Brian Bride's, I go, oh, my God, you know, we aren't talking about this. Fifty uh, percent? I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's huge. It's huge. And uh, and we've we've emphasized a lot of self-care in our curriculum pieces for our students. And what we find is that students will say, OK, all right, but they rarely implement it. And I think that what draws us to this field sometimes gets in the way of us taking care of ourselves. Uh, first and um, trying to help people uh, 
put those pieces together. So I don't want to make it sound like we have it figured out. Boy, we don't. We're really struggling with it. But, <laughs> but we're at least asking the questions. And, you know, when we look at a process even like tenure and putting people through that process, we try to do that again in as transparent and uh, humane way as possible, understanding that it's a it's an archaic process. And, you know, um, higher ed institutions had their start in the Middle Ages. And uh, there's lots of pieces of them that still still date back to that. Um, so, yeah, we try to model as much as we can, and I'm, we do. some of us do better than others, I'm sure, and then agencies would, would be trying to do the same. And the whole point of the sanctuary model is to actively work with the entire agency, from the janitor, the receptionist, all of the staff, understanding trauma and understanding the principles of trauma-informed care and applying that to everybody. So you really need leadership on board to really fully implement this model in an agency or in a program. So you, you've mentioned so many uh, I think important components to this idea of trauma-informed care. And the more that we talk about it, the more that I understand why it's not something that uh, I understood very well, because it, it's multifaceted. Um, you know, just from the piece that you said that as an individual provider, you can have a trauma-informed framework and still do CBT as yes. long as you are uh, um, making every effort to apply these principles. Um, you talked about choice and collaboration and empowerment, um, but also if you're if you're you could be a great CBT therapist and you could be great at working with people with PTSD in terms of reducing those symptoms um, associated with PTSD, but not be doing trauma-informed care if you don't think outside of just that individual relationship. Absolutely. That there yeah. has to be this uh, conceptualization of my uh, my individual practice is actually a systemic practice. Precisely. And I think that that I think that's a perpetual challenge in 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 social work education, and certainly it's it's a real challenge when you're out there in the field, and you do have a large caseload, and you don't have the time and energy or support to think beyond, you know, uh, improving that functioning score or reducing those symptoms, or you've got ten sessions that have been authorized, um, and so there are all of these barriers and. And it really sounds like the, taking a trauma-informed uh, approach is both consistent with social work practice and and also could result in better outcomes for for clients. Is there research to suggest that that is the case? Um, you know, there is re there is some research that's very preliminary and it's mo it's not certainly like randomized clinical trial it's research at the evaluation level the sanctuary model's been designated as a promising practice um, in some evidence-based approaches um, it's certainly not the kind of standard you would look for um, you know when you talk about gee prolonged exposure or EMDR are both level A, you know, evidence in terms of lots of randomized clinical trials. But there have been studies and that have found reduced restraints, you know, um, better, some better child outcomes in, like, say, child welfare programs. But the research still really needs to be done. And I, mean, I, think, I, I think of this as being an um, evidence-informed approach, mm -hmm. meaning we, we have strong evidence about 
a variety of things about how trauma affects people. Uh, it also is about giving people access to trauma-specific treatments, things like EMDR, prolonged exposure, seeking safety, things that actually address the symptoms, because that to me is a human rights issue, and it is also trauma-informed care. Make sure that people have access to those treatments, uh, as well as the whole framework of how you're doing treatment. But the you know really solid evaluation data is, is not there at the level that scientifically we would want it. It would be a little harder to do it with a, a real experiment because you are talking systems here. What I will say is that I think uh, our whole reason in moving to implementing this approach in our curriculum had to do with feedback from the community. We had had a trauma counseling certificate program here in our continuing ed from about just before 9-11, actually. And... Um, we started getting responses from agencies like, you know, a battered women's program that says, I want my entire staff trained in this because it's making such a huge difference in their morale and their ability to work with the full range of what we're getting. And so when we got positive feedback from our stakeholders, uh, as we were trying to decide on focus in the curriculum, uh, those were some of the things that made us say, hmm, maybe we need to look at this. But I still think of it very much as a value-based approach, partly, and um, evidence-informed. And promising practice by sort of SAMHSA guidelines. I don't think SAMHSA has classified it that way, but I do know that um, I think California had classified sanctuary model as a promising practice. Uh, you know, suggest the emerging evidence. Um, but it, the, that's interesting. It hasn't stopped most of the country to moving to this approach in their systems. And, you know, like child welfare systems around the country seem to be adopting this. Uh, mental health systems in some places say they're adopting this. Now, I say say because, you know, it can all look good on paper. I want to know what the experience of the recipients are in that process because that's really what keeps us honest. Um, and I think... The fact that we do bed checks in a mental health unit in the middle of the night and what that would do to trigger a sexual abuse survivor, what being put into restraints does to trigger people who are have been through physical abuse, those are you know um, things that have been rethought as this um, approach has become more more prolific. And I do think that people find that when you start to individualize and change those practices based on someone's trauma history and invo involving them in what's an advanced directive. When you lose control, how should we intervene with you as opposed to a global practice that people do find things like reduce restraints. But, you know, a full-blown scientific study of all of this is still yet to be done. Do you think that some of the move to adopting uh, a trauma-informed approach is in part response to um, our involvement in Iraq and uh, in Afghanistan, the fact that we're just coming out of the longest military engagement in our country's history. Yeah, you know, um, I don't think it's responsible for the initiation of this um, approach because, honestly, it, you know, the, this approach sort of got its start across the country before uh, these conflicts. But I do think that these conflicts and understanding trauma and the impact on folks coming back, as well as, you know, the other major mass disasters, certainly has raised the interest level for trauma itself and um, are, you know, are driving people to pay more attention to trauma models. And I'm sur I, I suspect it's accelerated it. However, that, that said, I am not aware, and, you know, there may be some VA systems out there 
that are doing a trauma-informed model. But by and large, I'm not aware that, say, for instance, the VA is using trauma-informed care as, as a model of treatment. It seems to have caught hold more in the child welfare system nationally, and that's partly because instead of the Centers on Child Abuse and Neglect, there was a movement at a policy level to the child traumatic stress networks around the country taking this approach. Um, I've seen it more in addiction treatment and mental health care. Um, and uh, I haven't heard people much talking about it in, in treatment of veterans, which is fascinating. I mean, certainly it fits. And when you look at how veterans have felt about, you know, in the past anyway, about the VA system, it makes perfect sense. I mean, you could watch an old movie like Article 99, which are, you know, Vietnam-era vets dealing with the VA and see how not to deal with trauma-informed care, you know? <laughs> it's, <laughs> but, it's like a negative example. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm sure the VA is not like that now. But um, I also don't know that the VA has actively taken this approach. Uh, and I, I'm really serious when I say, you know, we hired a, an extreme events faculty member a few years ago, a psychologist who's done a lot of work and research in PTSD, and she'd never heard of trauma-informed model. And she actually wrote it up for um, the psychological division that deals with traumatic stress in, um, in, a, in a magazine that's published as part of that um, division. Because, she said, researchers don't know about this, and a lot of the the standard trauma treatment people don't know about it either. It really is this sort of parallel perspective that's developed mostly, I think, started by um, recipients themselves um, and uh, addressing care systems and not by researchers working on PTSD and um, working on PTSD treatments. And so they've sort of come together a little bit. There is a National Center for Trauma-Informed Care that SAMHSA runs, and uh, if you do a search on trauma-informed care, it's usually the, one of the first things to come up. And they have listed their uh, trauma-specific interventions that fit well within a trauma-informed care model. You know, the sanctuary model is one, risking connections another. Uh, they talk about seeking safety. They have a variety of things. The fact that it's at SAMHSA tells us that this is really something that's moved into service, services and not so much from the formal knowledge base of academe and from research. Policymakers are paying huge attention to it, I think because systems have struggled with some of the um, issues and are there looking at the research. When you're talking about 90% of a mental health you know, population uh, in some places um, and certainly substance abuse that have significant trauma histories, you've got to start paying attention to that. Uh, and then you've got this whole veterans thing, which I, I haven't heard people intersect them much. So it's, it's kind of interesting what you say. I think it's the veterans issue and the, the war have contributed more to this zeitgeist of uh, awareness about trauma that's probably fed it, but I haven't seen it feed it directly. That's so, that's so interesting. And that's just my own opinion. And I'm, you know, somebody like Charles Figley might tell me I'm crazy, and he sees the connection. So. <laughs> <laughs> the um, so we, we've touched on a whole bunch of things here, and I really, really appreciate you providing this overview of trauma-informed care. I was wondering, could you just once again uh, summarize what the what the principles of trauma-informed care are? Sure. I mean, I think if you're talking um, principles, it, it partly depends on whose model you're talking about. But, but essentially, you first see a principle of um, it's 
it's not what's wrong with you, it's what happened to you. And that treatment needs to be guided by a commitment to safety and collaboration, choice, empowerment, and trustworthiness. Um, and really understanding um, how um, that trauma history is going to play out within the context of treatment um, so that um, trust and safety become paramount, um, you know, to getting treatment started and that trust uh, will be um, key in the process. Um, and, and paradoxically for me, that will start with my clients by telling them they shouldn't trust me until they've tested whether I'm trustworthy. Um, That's interesting. So, so when you first meet a client, or maybe not first, but in, in the beginning of your treatment, you say, hey, there's no reason why you should trust me. I, I have to earn your trust or something like that? Yes. I mean, I basically, and it's often in the first session. I mean, it, it depends on obviously what the client's coming for and what their history. But if they have any kind of a history of significant trauma, what I'll say is, listen, you have, you have more than enough experience in your life to indicate that people uh, cannot be trustworthy. You don't know me. There's no reason you should just automatically trust me. You, you, are, you are free to test your trust with me. I want you to do that, and let's talk a little bit about how you test trust with people. Um, so, you know, strangely enough, when you, when you lead with that, um, you, inde- you engender some trust right at that moment. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, because you're acknowledging their experience and, you know, acknowledging what they're probably feeling already, which is, you know, apprehensive about who is this person and can I trust them. Um, and then in normalizing testing trust, all of those behaviors that we like to label as manipulative or whatever, you know, many of those fall into that category. <laughs> so yes. now we've talked about how can you test it and how can you test it in a way um, that might be more adaptive, but also what are the, some of the ways that you've tested trust with people and you start to get that on the table. So that's, you know, sort of taking a collaborative approach to understanding that issue of trust and how will we work on this together, those would be examples of those principles sort of in action. But yes, those are the principles that would really guide treatment. And that's why I think even if you are doing this within your office and your client population may not require huge levels of system level intervention because maybe they're a little higher functioning, but it will affect things like what's my availability to my clients? And I'm not suggesting that we should all be available all the time, but um, I, I wrote a blog post about a client that I had finished with and, um, and I had shut down my private practice finally with this dean's job just got to be too much and um, I gave her some referrals and she commented about how difficult it was dealing with a therapist who had very restricted ways of accessing them, meaning you leave a voicemail message and they call you back and you get in this back and forth piece. And what she said is that it felt very withholding and she realized it was triggering, um, that it felt a lot like her parents. <laughs> um, mm. And her insight about that, I thought, wow. And she said, you know, you felt more accessible than that. Now, accessible. I allowed her to send me email, not about, you know, crisis things, but, she, you know, we, we talked about email and about the fact that I wouldn't respond to it instantly. She also was allowed to text me to change appointments and things. And I set lots of boundaries around, you do not tell me you're suicidal through text message or through email, you right, know, right. those types of things. But because I was accessible in the ways that she was accustomed to relating to the world, um, it didn't feel so triggering. 
So, you know, that might be true for her and not true for somebody else. But, I mean, looking at the ways in which I'm connecting with my clients and asking that and looking to adjust them a little bit, because, yeah, you want to trigger a little bit in the sense that it gives you something to work on. But if someone's so overwhelmed initially that they can't cope because everything I'm doing is difficult for them to manage, then we're never going to be able to get a relationship started and to work together. Um, so I do think that those principles sound very clean and simple, and it's more about you know using them to examine what you're doing and really working hard to solicit what your client's reactions are. And that's not easy to do because people have been taught that they can't be honest with people or they're going to be beat up or you know whatever else. So you're really working to get honest opinions from people about what's working and what's not is, um, is an ongoing process. The examples that you just gave about how to turn these principles into practice are really interesting. And I think it's exactly the kind of thing that folks listening to the podcast would love to learn more about. Are there resources? Are there um, uh, either other podcasts or um, books or articles that you would recommend around the application of these trauma-informed principles? And then are there other resources for the uh, for the broader understanding of trauma-informed care as, as really as systems intervention? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Well, let me start with the systems-level intervention ones because those are probably easier to find. Um, there's a couple of podcasts in our school social work podcast series. Uh, used to be called Living Proof. Now it's in in social work that I think are especially helpful. And that's um, two interviews that I did with Brian Farragher of the Andrus Children's Center on the sanctuary model and how they've implemented it at Andrus. And he's the executive director there, and he really talks frankly about, you know, what what putting that model into practice means and their struggles with it. Uh, and I know that was very helpful to me in understanding if people search for that SAMHSA Center on Trauma-Informed Care and Trauma Services and you look under the option that says, what is trauma-informed care, they have some interventions listed there. The risk and connection curriculum is mentioned there. There's a model called the Atrium model. And all of them sort of um, uh, something called the TREM, Trauma Recovery and Empowerment. They all do provide some trauma-specific intervention, but they're all sort of grounded within some principles of of trauma-informed care. Uh, I have a a chapter out in a Wiley book which uh, just came out which talks more about trauma-informed social work practice and I I think one of my criticisms of this approach is it doesn't get specific enough for practitioners. Um, I haven't seen a huge number of things that translate that uh, in very many specific ways. I could give you a million different examples, but... Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll have to do a part two where yeah, you do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, because I really think that it, it comes down to... It, it does come down to very specific interactions with people, but I haven't seen anybody pull it all in one, together in one way to really guide what I would call more the micro-principles. Um, I would say that I think motivational interviewing at its core is what I would really ask, tell people to learn if they really want to understand trauma-informed care. And it doesn't talk about trauma at all, but the value, the principles and what drives that are so congruent with the core principles. And then you just have to take that to the next level, and you have to ask the question of, how am I operating my practice? How, you know, how are those things, how do I make those decisions? How am I involving people in those practice, you know, in what I do? 
Um, things like my policies around how to contact me, things like how my office is set up. I mean, I will always ask my clients, looking around my office, is there anything here right now that is difficult for you to sort of tolerate? And you'll find out about things that are triggers that never in a million years um, would have occurred to you. Uh, And so learning just to ask those questions. Uh, So you have to sort of apply some of those principles. But... um, in what you do, but I haven't seen anyone put all of that in writing. And, you know, maybe that's just like a book or a chapter or something I need to write at a more micro level. Um, well, and that's help. good to know, too. I think I think um, it's good to know what resources are out there. I, I also think it's helpful to know what's not out there. Mm-hmm. Because if you can't find something, is it because you don't know how to look for it or because it's not there? And so um, I, I appreciate you saying that, that from your understanding and, and what you've what you've looked for, you haven't been able to find something that really um, brings it down to a practice, a micro level um, in, in the sense that we're talking about. Yeah, and I do think that those um, those links on the uh, National Center um, for uh, Trauma-Informed Care, those particular models will talk about it at a micro level within their approaches. They just won't do it at the sort of global, this is trauma-informed care, and generally they'll do it within the context of the trauma recovery and empowerment model. And those, So those are what I think be good starting resources for people. That's great. Well, Nancy, I, I really appreciate you taking all of this time to provide us this overview of trauma-informed care. Uh, is is there anything else that that you wanted to add that we didn't cover before we end this? Um, you know, the only other thing I would add about a resource is, uh, and it's kind of buried on our website, which which is a, a problem. But I, I just actually sent it out. I think it'll go out over Twitter some point today um, on our school social work account. Is that uh, we have a, a resource center on our website um, at the University of Buffalo School of Social Work that. Trauma and Human Rights Resource Center, and in there, there's a link for conference resources, and if you click through that, you'll find some videos of Sandra Bloom describing sort of a trauma 101 model, you know, in other words, what are, how does trauma affect people, there's an, and another video of her talking about sanctuary model. Um, and uh, and then as well as uh, 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 Dr. Andrus, who's talking about the ACEs study, which is adverse childhood experiences and um, research that's come out of making us understand that the number of adverse childhood experiences people live through predicts a whole range of health problems, mental health problems in adulthood. So those are great free video resources for folks. And uh, I, I think I like her description of Sanctuary Model there better than our podcast on it, which, you know, we do have a podcast on the Sanctuary Model with her, but um, she more talks about how she discovered and came to the Sanctuary Model in the podcast, and it's not so much a great overview of the Sanctuary Model. Oh, that's really interesting. Okay, well, we'll make sure that we put that up there um, as well. Okay. And I thank you for, for having me here. I could talk about trauma and trauma-informed care forever, so I appreciate your your interest and patience. Absolutely. Well, I think, um, you know, if we were having coffee, we could probably talk about it all afternoon, but knowing full well that people are listening to this in the car and on the bus and perhaps even on the treadmill, um, it's pro- <laughs> probably a good time for us to, to end our, our conversation. So, Nancy, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jonathan. I'm Jonathan Singer, and thanks for being with me today for another episode of the Social Work Podcast. If you missed an episode or have suggestions for future episodes, please visit socialworkpodcast.com. 
If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit our online store at cafepress.com slash swpodcast. To all the social workers out there, keep up the good work. We'll see you next time at the Social Work Podcast. Thank you.